Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Monotheism is belief in one God and only one God, and that is the reality period end of discussion. No other gods exist. All right, and any belief in any other gods is is a is a denial of your faith. Okay, so um, that's pure monotheism. As I was saying, Deuteronomy of all the books is the one that amplifies this the most. And you can find echoes of that in the historical books of the Bible from Joshua uh, through Kings in terms of the ideals that are set out. And many of the prophets also, of course, reflect this. So, but there is, as we will see in a moment, there are other forms of worship of God that are mentioned and even seen actively being practiced in uh, ancient biblical times. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, this is a line that you know if you go to Shul on Simchat Torah, because it's the beginning of the calls that lead into the hakafot, the the marching around with the Torah. Okay, so Deuteronomy 4, chapter 4, verse 35. In fact, you can even sing it with me. Well, you probably want to sing louder than I will, because you want to drown my voice out, but that's okay. Are you there? Deuteronomy 4.35. Sound familiar? Okay. Uh, you have been shown to know that Adonai, Yudhei is Ha-Elohim, is the God, Ein Od Milvado, there are no others other than He. That's pretty categorical. It doesn't say Eloheichem, I am Adonai, your God. It's a universal statement. Okay? And it's clear, Ein Od, no others. That's monotheism. Got it? Okay. Now, Going down the ladder, the next one is what we call monaltry. Okay? Monaltry. M-O-N-A-L-T-R-Y. This is, we worship only one God. We may recognize that there may be other gods, but we will not worship them. Okay? We will not worship them. Now, this can be found in some of the older strata of the Torah. So for example, if you look at Exodus 23, 4 and 5, what does it say? Exodus 23, 24 and 25. 23, 24, 25. I'm cutting out some intermediate words. Lo Eloheim, the lo ta'avdeim. Do not bow down to their gods and do not worship them. And the next line in verse 25, the avadata ata et Adonai Eloheichem, you shall worship Adonai your God. So there is no uh, actual renouncing of the existence of other gods. What it is saying is they may exist, 
but don't worship them. Okay? Don't worship them. Tybal. Somehow I got the citation wrong. I'm looking at 23, 4, and 5, and it's about... No, no, 24 and 25. I corrected myself. 24 and 25. Oh, the whole chapter, not the verb. Got it. No, no, just the end. Just those verbs, those two sentences. 24, 23, 24, and 25. Yeah, I'm sorry. 23, colon, 24, 25. Okay. So those two verses basically... Don't they not, they do not say, it's not like Deuteronomy. Only. If there are other gods, don't worship them. Okay? So that's an example of that. We'll see more of that later. Then there was called henotheism, which is, again, heno means one, but here it's the, it's this. We worship the supreme God, but we recognize there are other gods, some of whom comprise a pantheon over which the supreme God rules. Okay? Now, we don't have mention of this in the Bible per se, but archaeology would indicate that this was the case. And two, um, two are, we're going to see, show more, discuss this in greater detail in a moment. I have pictures to show you. But the we've we talked about this once before, I think. Uh, I will show you pictures of Tel Arad, and I'll show you pictures of Tel Dan, okay, where we see um, Matsevot, pillars, standing stones, and there's more than one. And the point is, these are understood as these are representations of deities. And these were Israelite cultic sites. Okay, and so the uh, today's archaeologists, you know, who are open, shall we say, to let letting the the facts, so to speak, speak for themselves, will say these are places that, in fact, the prophets refer to. Okay, and and they existed, and certain things, the the concept of a consort for God, a female goddess who is worshipped along with God, takes on different shapes and forms, which we will talk about a little bit later on. But the fact is, that was part of, that was a target of the prophets and the Deuteronomic school um, when these, uh, when, when these stronger monotheistic principles began to take hold. But this is according to the Bible, what people worship. Okay, so that would be henotheism, a supreme God with lesser gods, if you will. This is different from the B'nai Elim that we talked about in the Psalms, which would seem to be something else altogether. Okay, all right. And then finally, polytheism, which of course is the major bugaboo here, which means, of course, the, the, the worship of multiple gods, you know, of equal power, fighting each other, all of the mythologies that you see in the literature of the ancient Near East in the pagan world represent this. There are some signs of, you know, in Egypt, you know, with, with uh, um, there was a, a moment there where it appeared that some form of monotheism may be emerging, and this was in the 14th century BCE, uh, but it was short-lived, and it's hard to make a lot of understand you know, to really 
figure out what that represented, if it was actual monotheism or henotheism. Um, and some people used to argue that that's where Moses got his ideas. Hmm. I don't, uh, that doesn't sit well with me. All right. Anyhow, so these are the four terms, monotheism, monotry, henotheism, polytheism. Okay. Now, we can see in biblical texts that this tension exists, and you can almost see a kind of an evolution in some of the texts. And there's there are a few texts, actually, internally, that seem to be moving from point A to point B. Okay, so now I want you to turn to the book of Psalms. All right, and these are Psalms that um, uh, make up the the uh, uh, Kabbalah Shabbat. Some of these, okay. All right, so we're starting with Psalm ninety-five. Okay, Psalm ninety-five, verse three. Just want to get here for the context. A minute. Okay. All right, so this is, you know, we're, this is the beginning of Kabbalah Shabbat, right? Psalm 53, Lechuna Ranana. Yes, you're familiar with it. Okay, so there's this line here in Psalm 95. Ki el gadol Adonai umelech gadol al kol Elohim. Right? Adonai is a, is the, is a great God. And a raw, a king god over all the others. All right. So this would be an example of monotry. Okay. In other words, we are not saying that you should worship the other ones. God forbid. But the, that this, our God is the supreme God. There exist others, but we don't worship them. And it doesn't explicitly refer to the second part of what I said, but I believe that would be the implication here. Okay. All right. Bert. Uh, just a question on the English translation of divine beings. Is it is it translated that way to avoid saying other gods? Yeah, I mean, there's always <laughs> been a hesitancy among translators to come right out, you know, and affirm that that the monotheism in at certain stages in ancient Israelite tradition uh, was actually not as pure as we would like it to be. Because even even in in Deuteronomy, I think there's that, that phrase Elohim Achirim. Yeah, but gods you didn't know that that somehow there's right, God you I know think, and gods you didn't know. Yeah, but those see, I mean, there's a mention of that. We're going to see it, okay? Uh, in terms of what the what, what they what they are, and you see the same thing in the Psalms we're going to look at in just a minute, okay? Where they say they refer to other Elohim, but then they say Elohim Acherim Elilim. They're only idols, okay? Which is in a sense a denial that they really are gods. Isn't that sometimes translated as no gods? Yeah, no yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but Elil. Yeah, but I don't. They're trying to explain the Elo. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that discussion. Okay. All right. Now, but see that, well, that's what's, um, what's coming up right now. So look at Psalm 96 verses four and five. Okay. So first, and this is in the same Psalm. 
right? 96, 4, and 5. Right? For God is great and greatly praised. No Rahu al Kol Elohim. He is is awesome above, you know, he is compared to the other gods. He is no Ra, right? He's awesome. Yes? But then look at verse 6. Ki kol Elohei ha'amim elilim. Because all the other, the, the gods of the other nations are idols, right? But God made the heavens. So all of the, this is picks up on a Deuteronomic concept which we're going to look at, that the heavenly host, then people may think they're gods, but God made them. So where's the gods? Okay, so, the, the, but this is within the same psalm. It's almost as if it's picking up on what 95 said and saying, okay, that may be the case, but re- the reality is this, that they're mere idols. They're non-gods, right? They're non-gods. Okay. Now, the codes in the Torah are are rather clear regarding pagan or pagan-like practices. And now I, I want to focus on this concept, okay? Pagan-like practices. All right, so here, yes, let's go to <clears throat> Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. Before you get there, what is in Exodus chapter 20? What text do we find there? Is is that the Big Ten? Yeah, the Big Ten. Right. Oh, you're a football fan. Hmm. No, I am emphatically not. <laughs> Despite being a Pittsburgh native, and I know this is recorded, I think professional sports leads to war. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right. So, Ten Commandments, right? Anochi Adonai Elohecha Asher Mitzrayim Right? I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Lo yelecha Elohim acherim al panai. Right, you shall have no other gods before me. Lotas. Now, here's the key line here. I mean, it says you shall have no other gods. It's not clear here if this is the denial of the existence of those gods, or simply saying there may be others out there, but don't follow them. I'm not going to get into that right now. This is Exodus. It's not Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy says the same thing there. You know, remember Deuteronomy five six to eight is going to be the the similar thing in Deuteronomy, the other set of Ten Commandments. All right? So, Lo ta'asel lecha pesel b'chol t'muna asher b'ashamay mima'al ve'asher ba'aretz mitachat. Don't make any image, any any idol, any image of anything that is in the heavens above and on the earth below. The Asher Bamayim and what's in the water, Mitachad Laaretz, the water below the, below the earth. In other words, that's sort of talking about Tahome, which is often seen, this goddess who is a huge big shark or big fish of some kind. Don't bow down to them, don't worship them, right? Okay. So, you only worship God and do not Make any images of any other creatures, any other creations. 
in the sky, on the earth, or in the water. Okay, covering all bases. Okay. Um, all right. So that's the point. Now, by the way, if you think about it, that was the problem with the golden calf, right? Because the golden calf, or if you will, young bull, is an item, even, even if you say that that is God, right? And there's debate among Bible scholars whether the golden calves that's mentioned, you know, later on in Exodus or in Exodus 32, or the golden calves, there's one golden calf there, or the golden calves that King Jeroboam put up in his two temples, one in Beit El and one in Dan, Tel Dan, Dan, one in the south, one in the north. Okay, so there are discussions whether those were intended to be uh, literally representations of Hashem, or if they were intended to be a chariot of Hashem, the way the ark in the Jerusalem temple was a chariot or throne of God. Okay, so they sort of depends, and I'm not going to get into that into that debate from the perspective of the of the Bible, uh, both in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It's idolatry. It's a horrible, horrible sin. Okay, all right, but there, that debate exists. Okay, but again, the problem with it, and I don't know what the Ten Commandments in the North said. Okay, but clearly. If you set up a golden calf in your temple and worship either the golden calf itself or the God who's invisible sitting on the golden calf, it's still a violation of this because it is a representation of a creature that God created on the earth. And this prohibits that. Bert. Is the prohibition here of making those images at all or making them for the purpose of worship? I mean, if, if well, having a picture, having a picture on your wall of an animal. It says it right here. Any image. So strict, so strictly speaking, any image of anything. Yes, can't make an image. Even, even if you don't bow down, even if it's not for the purpose of worship. That's what it seems to be saying. Okay. Because somebody might see it and you might induce that person who's an Israelite to say, oh, you have a picture of the Baal here. I'm going to stop and pay him homage. I I mean, I, you know, but it says, Pesel, I know. Okay, that's generally a word used for idol. Tuna means an image, right? It, it, literally. So, I mean, it, 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 because that there, it's probably going to be a, it may that that may have what that may have in mind is the way the Asherah ended up being represented, which is a wooden pole instead of a tree. Okay, and you had so, the webs the the websites <laughs> the the um, worship sites that the prophets will refer to. Okay, uh, will actually specific specify the Asherot. Okay, and or a, a tree, a, a, a wood, you know. So that that is not necessary. I mean, it's a pestle, but it's not a pestle. The same thing with a matzeva. This doesn't make reference here to a matzeva. That will appear in later sources. A standing stone, but so this- stones are not. It's not tech. Technically, it's it's not like it. It functions like a pestle, 
But normally you say pestle, you're talking about something that has some sort of artwork in it, some sort of representation in it. Why wouldn't this then, I mean, I'm talking very traditionally, apply to photographs, like the photographs of a rabbi? Well, that's something that, you know, yeah, I mean, that was an issue. Okay. I, I know there are some now, uh, I mean, Jewish you know, sects that have pictures of their founding rabbis everywhere. Right. And and even, you know, the Rebbe, the Rebbe's picture, there are certain groups of Chabad people who actually put a picture of the Rebbe on the on the west eastern wall of their synagogue. So, I mean, yeah, but, uh, you know, obviously there's a certain point where they become more open to those things because they really lost that kind of, you know, concept of relationship. Um but there is always, there is you always. Have, you got Rebbe cards that I don't know if they still have them. Like we used to have baseball cards. My Rebbe heroes, all these great rabbis. And there's pictures of them, you know, and they cha- exchange them, so forth, you know. So, all right. And potentially the danger of worshiping. Yeah. The people. Yes. All right. Yeah, exactly. Tybal. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. I wasn't sure. I was thinking of those Rebbe baseball cards that get traded. When one thinks about that in conjunction of uh, the same communities that trade Rebbe cards will block out photos of female diplomats and elected officials. Yeah. I mean, I know there are two different kinds of problems, but when one thinks about that in this context, it's to me, it's sociologically interesting. You can trade the Rebbe cards, but, you know, forget we should see whoever it might be, Madeleine Albright. There, there, it's different. It's dealing with uh, pictures of women that are not modestly dressed. Remember? No, I think it's the faces because even the modestly okay. dressed ones blocked yeah, maybe. out. Look, look. I mean, the truth is, today we have Haredi women who cover their faces. They look like Muslim women, and there, there are some who do. Very extreme groups. They do. Yeah. All right. So, so this is an example then of, in terms of, we're looking at forms of worship, okay? So here now, Exodus 23, 24, okay? This is, we looked at 24 and 25, but now this is what precedes that. So Exodus 23, verses, verse 24. Okay? The whole verse. And I'm looking at 23, 23 also. Okay. All right. So, when my uh, messenger shall go before you, I'm sorry. I have writing on here. It's blocking out the, the, the vowels. Okay, and I will destroy, and I will overcome him. All right, when I, my, my, my malach, in this case, it's probably the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. Okay, and brings you to the land of these nations, and I, whom I will destroy, I will, you know, get rid of. Right? Alright, do not bow down to their gods and do not worship them. The lota asekem asehem, and don't do the, the things that they have done. 
And that refers to Elilim, which you can see in Psalm 96, verse 5. In other words, the things that they have made. But rather, what do you have to do with those things that they made? Harais to Harsem, destroy them. Bishaber to Shaber Matzevotam, and smash their Matzevot. Now you have a reference to Matzevot, the standing stones. Okay, that was, we're going to see, that's a biggie. The standing stones. And I think I may have mentioned that archaeologists will tell you that the Israelites who worshipped with standing stones had two varieties. In the South, the tradition was not to put any any artwork on it, any depictions. In the North, they would do depictions. They would put artwork on it of some form. Tybal, that may be what you were talking about earlier when we were having our discussion before we started. Okay, so there's a difference in the tradition as to how this idolatry was played out between the South and the North. Okay, so destroy them. Um, if you worship them, verse 25, worship God, and he will bless all these other things, and I'll, and I will keep disease away from you. Okay. So again, this is what you have, this is regarding a de- defining of what, what you should not do in terms of idolatrous practices. Okay. Now, moving on, Leviticus chapter 26. Lo ta'asu lachem elilim. Don't make for 20, Leviticus 26, 1. I will pause so you can get there. Leviticus 26, 1. <clears throat> Rabbi. Yes, Mark. Yeah. Uh, was uh, Judea more isolated from the trade routes in, in, uh, uh, you know, polytheistic practices than the, than the North was going through the Via Maris and through the, uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's hard to say because we know, we know that there was idolatrous practice going on in Judea already around the year 800. Mm-hmm. I mean, actively. Um, the popular, remember that it's hard that the, the, there are probably, well, later on, I'm going to show you a map of locales where, where they have found evidence of Israelite, uh, idolatrous practice. So we'll, let me hold off and I'll answer that when we take a look at that map because I haven't memorized the whole thing. Okay. Mind you that the population in the north was much more dense than the population in the south. So So, I guess by the number of people present, you're mm -hmm. in more places than in the south. It was more urbanized because of the trade routes? Well, but the trade routes came through the south too. Remember, I mean, Jerusalem was a center for trade. Mm -hmm. And there were areas there, you know, the coastal route is in the south. It's along the coast of the, uh, you know. But it, it, it's, it's part of the, the South benefits from that as well. But of course, the, the, the reality is that a lot of those areas there were Philistines, but that's good up until the year 1000. After 1000, the Israelites, you know, moved into some of those areas and, you know, took over there. Although the, the fact is, no, the Philistines stayed there. It, later on, I think it was the Persians or the Greeks that ultimately wiped them out. Mm-hmm. So they remained there. But, uh, you know, again, the Negev, the desert areas, you know, that were, they were, the, the pop, 
they probably ended around the point where Beersheba and Arad are, that far south, because those were two of the outposts. There were fortresses there. So that those fortresses protected the southern boundary. So that was basically the southern boundary. Then, of course, as you go upwards from there, then you're coming into areas of Benjamin and Judah that were more densely populated and where you find, you know, they're, there some of them had uh you know idol worship they know both at um at arad and in beersheba there were there were um um bamot high places unauthorized according to deuteronomy and that comes from josiah's list of what what he shut down mm-hmm. okay so but again I, we'll see on the map and it'll answer the question okay all right so <clears throat> So Leviticus 26.1. Lo elilim, don't make idols who fessel umatseva, right? Don't make, um, whether they are, you know, uh, idols that are with, with decor or matsevot, possibly we're talking here about, uh, this is Jerusalem priesthood, so it's southern, so plain stones, Donus, don't set them up, lotakimu, don't, you know, because when you took the stone and stood it vertically, then you are, that's an indication you're going to worship it. It's not lying flat. It stands up. All right. Evan maskit, again, a stone, apparently a cut stone, right, as opposed to a matzeba, which may be the plain stone. You should not put them through in your land and you should not that you should bow down to them. Because I am the Lord your God. Then it says that So you should, you should follow my Sabbaths and uh, stand in awe of my holy place. Right? I am the Lord your God. Okay, so by the way, it's very interesting as an aside. Shabbat is often mentioned in juxtaposition with idolatry. Think about it. The second commandment, right, deals with idolatry. The third commandment deals with taking God's name in vain, which may also have certain misuse of God's name associated Okay, and what's the fourth commandment? Shabbat. And there are a number of places where you have statements like this. Uh, look at, think about, uh, Vayikra, the beginning of, of, um, Parshat Kedoshim. Okay. In fact, the first, the first thing it says, you be holy for I, Lord, your God, and holy. Isha vi rao, a person should uh, uh, honor or fear, have fear of, uh, of one's mother and father. And follow my Sabbath. And then it says, don't put up idols. So again, Sabbath and idol, it's almost as if it's saying that a major, uh, negation of, of idolatry will accompany the worship of Shabbat. Somehow it helps. It's a prophylactic against idolatry. Okay. Because if you think about it, it is, first of all, it was very unique in the ancient world. 
And second of all, it's a celebration of God's resting on the seventh day, having completed the process of of creation. And if you look at it from the perspective of Deuteronomy in the Ten Commandments, it's a result of it's an it's an emphasis on the freeing of the Israelites from slavery. So in either case, it's talking about the power of God either as creator or as redeemer. And so if you if if once a week you get a, a an injection of that kind of faith in this great God, perhaps it will be a prophylactic against idolatry. But it's interesting that those two. That's my my suggestion. All right. So Tabel, is that your, is that from before? Or you have another comment? No, just I mean I don't have a concordance, so I can't obviously. I can't do the same thing, but I just went to Bereshi's, uh, 28, 18 to 22 to see when Jacob did, what words were there. And they're the same word. I mean, when Jacob did it, somehow that stands alone at what became Bethel. I know it's just interesting to me. It's the same words later. Hold off. We will be going there momentarily. <clears throat> okay. We're going to get there. You are appreciant. <laughs> You're thinking of things before they happen. Okay, good. Bert. Uh, I just want to say that Shabbat is about time. Is about which time. is, Shabbat is about time. Time. D-I-M-E. Yeah. Okay. And idols and all of that is about matter. Yes. So you have that juxtaposition as well. I mean. Yes. The, the, the exodus and creation is about the why. But what is Shabbat? Shabbat is time. There's nothing material about it. Correct. I mean, and the fact is also creation and and the Exodus are divine activity that is transcends, if you will, the material. Because God in each case is bending the material to God's will, right? In both instances, using nature to make a point. Yeah. So Genesis one, it's the creation nature exists. Uh, the story of the 10 plagues is the antithesis. God is undoing nature and unraveling it, you know, in, 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 to, to bring the, to bring Pharaoh, uh, you know, to his knees. So in that sense, yeah, but it's time, cosmic time, if you will. Is being, is being invoked or is being manipulated here. Seven days, right? Ten plagues, time, time, and they're all time bound. Moses tells Pharaoh in two days, this is going to happen, whatever. So they're, they're, it's all planned. It's not, it's clear the way those, the way the plagues are set out, it is clear that the, uh, when they were put together, that the author wanted us to understand that this is a managed experience here. The first three deal with the land. The second three deal uh, with the with the um, the air, and the thirds. No, no, sorry, it's land, water. No, water, land, and air, right beyond. And then the the, the tenth plague is off the charts. And and Nachum Sarna has a lot of discussion on this, and he's absolutely right. It's 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 an indication. That structure is an indication of the power of God associated with both the, the creation and the exodus. So I'm just elaborating basically 
on what you said, right? Because that's the, the, the invisible immaterial God you, within, within certain time frames is unravel, either creating or unraveling. It's the same thing with the, when you read, when we read the flood story, right? You see the timing of all these, especially in the priestly tradition, but even in the J tradition, right? So many days, so many days, a very precise time is being controlled by God. So that's what Shabbat is as well. So I'm just making a bridge. I'm expanding what you're saying. Okay. All right. Now moving on. Um, yes. Now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, okay, verses 21 and 22, okay? <clears throat> 21. Lo tita lecha asherah hol eitz, eitz el mizbach Adonai Elohecha asher ta'aselach, okay? Do not plant a tree, an asherah, or any tree. So what's the difference between the Asherah or any tree? Uh, we, the, our scholars tell us the Asherah refers to the wooden pole. Okay. A man, man crafted pole, which was used in lieu of a tree. Because, you know, if you want to build a, a, a tabernacle to, I mean, a, a worship place for God and you got to plant a tree. Uh, you know, by the time it grows and reaches the point where it makes you want to be worshipful, you know, you've got to be very patient when you build a sacred place. You want it up right away so I can worship. So you simply chop down an existing tree and you get go to a wood craftsman and they shape it into a pole of some kind and you stick the pole in the ground in lieu of a tree. So that's what this is saying, either whether it's a wooden pole or a tree, or you may build a, the flip side, of course, is you can choose a site that already has a tree, and we're going to look at that, and use that as your Asherah, okay? So do not do that near a, an, a, an altar for God that you might make. Now, this is really interesting because it is assuming that you're going to make an altar. But this is Deuteronomy. What does Deuteronomy say about worshiping? Offering sacrifices. This is a Mizbeach. It's an altar for sacrifices. What is it suggesting here? Is it suggesting that you're going to build a local shrine with a local altar? Can't be, because Deuteronomy says there's only one place that you can offer sacrifices. So it sounds as if what they're saying is you should have no depiction of <clears throat> um, of an Asherah in your temple. Do you understand what I'm saying? Deuteronomy bans local shrines. It says so explicitly in verse 12. The place where I call my cause my name to dwell that's where you will offer sacrifices. You want to eat meat? You make meat now without sacrifices. Just follow the rules and make yourself kosher meat. The first, the first definition of kosher meat 
is Deuteronomy, who was saying, since you can't go to a local shrine and offer a thanks, thanks off, offering, okay, or a peace offering, and you get your hunk and you take it home and cook it, that's how people ate meat beforehand. But there were shrines all over the place, so it wasn't such a schlep. But, you know, you can't go to do, if you're living up north, you know, let's say you're living, uh, you know, 10 miles north of Jerusalem. You're going to go 10 miles south to the temple, offer a sacrifice, and go back home and eat? Probably not. <clears throat> so Deuteronomy says, Shek the animal yourself, spill the blood in the ground and eskizunt, but no sacrifices. So clearly, this, you know, this must be talking about a temple. Now, the question is, did anybody ever, is there any reference to any kind of idolatrous imagery or anything in the temple in Jerusalem? Do you know of any? I do. Only much later when the Romans defiled it. No, 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 no. Hezekiah takes out a nechushtan, a bronze serpent that was inside the temple, okay? That was being apparently worshipped. Josiah takes out an image of the queen of heaven, out, takes it out of the temple. This is now, so Hezekiah is around 710 BCE. Josiah is around 620 BCE. <clears throat> That's the temple in Jerusalem. The point is, this may be alluding to the fact that you shouldn't bring any any imagery of a female deity into the temple as what Josiah found. That's traith. That's grounds for destruction of that temple, which, of course, it was. So I'm just suggesting that that's the only way I can understand this statement. Otherwise, it would say if you build one, if you build your, for yourself an altar, you know, all it is, then, then don't, don't, don't put it by a tree. That yes. makes no sense. But you can't build for yourself an altar. Okay. Number, all right. So Bert and Tybal. Just quickly, to what extent was this actually political with the priesthood trying to establish that a monopoly over prayer. Well, it's a, a monopoly over sacrifice, not a sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, but worship. There seems to be this tension. I mean, okay, where do you draw the line? Right. Okay. Well, you know, where I mean, there's Temple Beth Am. There's a lot of synagogues that call themselves temple something now. Yeah, 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 but that was just a re that has nothing to do with the nature of the worship. That was right. because the reform movement started it because they didn't like the name synagogue, no. best midrash, because it was too, too, uh, you know, too uh, narrow in its interpretation. The Jewish. Paul, ah, everybody understands what a temple is. No, that was for. Oh, it did not. Well, that, that was partially political, partially. Right. Okay. But, but, you know, again, I just ask that what you're hitting on is why I am opposed to the reestablishment of the priesthood. Because there's no question that the priests became very politically involved at different times. Okay. But on the other hand, you have to ask, answer the question. The, the whole, the whole Josianic reform that takes place and, and or Hezekiah before him, was a radical redefinition of what 
Israelite practice was. It was a very severe ideology, given the reality of the time. You would call today we would call it extremism, right? I mean, it's, it's what it is. Uh, and and in fact, you know, talking we mentioned Haredi last night. You know, a trembling. Yes, the the people we we talked about the people who came back from the destruction from from the from the exile and did not continue and, and discontinued idolatry. The ones who returned to Eretz Israel and presumably the ones that stayed there, although we don't know what went on up there. But basically, they were Haredim at the time because they were shaken. They were quaking, right? And they're the Jewish Quakers, right? They were quaking because of the impact of that destruction. They were scared out of their bazookas. So they came back and didn't do it. Okay? And so when Josiah is doing what he does, he knows the history of what happened with the northern kingdom where they had the golden calves. And the northern kingdom was much more powerful than the south. And look what the Assyrians did to it. Okay, so he's got that already behind him. Hezekiah sensed that, but he was didn't have the power, or let's say seriously just at the time, there was no opportunity to be able to do what Josiah did. But Josiah did it because he saw what happened to the northern kingdom because of their idolatry. Okay, so so therefore, the taking out of the um, Malkat Shamayim, the Queen of Heaven, it's interesting. Was that an Asherah? It's a feminine goddess, not a male god. That was in there, in addition to the to you know to Hashem's presence. Okay, that's horrible from the perspective of Deuteronomy, but clearly somebody before him wasn't so bad. Now remember Menashe, his father ruled 50 some years. This is the guy who offered sacrifices, possibly child sacrifices in the Valley of Hinnom to uh, doing a uh, Moloch worship, which is a pagan form of worship, clearly. And that's Moloch is mentioned specifically in the Torah as prohibited. So, I mean, there was, that's how, how deep the idolatry hit. Now you understand the extremes of Josiah's push in the opposite direction. And the, and, and the scroll that the key, that the prophet, that the priest found in the temple that scared him into doing this, you know, it was, well, we would say, it, in, in fact, it was written under the influence of priests who convinced Josiah that we got to do this because otherwise we're going to end up like the North did. And it's interesting to note that Holda the prophetess is the one who hold Josiah, told Josiah, she said, okay, this, this, the horrible thing that you're trying to prevent, guess what? You can't prevent it. You can only push it off a little bit. But eventually, what has happened beforehand was so horrible that the worst is going to happen. Try your best, but some you will not see the fall of the temple. He didn't. He was killed in battle. But the next generation or two will. Okay, that's how bad it had become in the eyes of these 
extreme monotheists. Okay? So, that's what's going on here. And it's interesting, it's an Asherah, and the Malkat Shamayim is a female. And both are verboten. Okay? So don't stand one up. I see your hand, Tybal. Just a minute. Don't establish one, again, to make it stand. Yes, which God hates. So no Asherim or Asherot, no standing stones. All right, so here we see a consensus then from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy that such forms of practice should not be followed. Okay, QED. All right, Bible. Um, so two things. One is when you were asked us and none of us thought about Hezekiah and Josiah, and I assume that lots of us go to shul and I thought, hmm, why didn't we think about that? And then I thought, well, it's the rabbis because it didn't, in some sense, a certain time of rabbis didn't want people to be as literate about that because yet yeah, Torah, we read the entire thing. Um, Suvim, we have the five scrolls for the five holidays, but when you look at the Haftarot, none of them are from the historical books where it would have told us, it would remind shulgoers, because you get there once or more a year, about those parts of Hezekiah and Josiah. Uh, about, about the idolatry that was in the temple. Well, I mean, we have other prophets that are railing about it in general, but not those specific historical uh, examples in Abdora. I'm not sure. I believe that the the story of Josiah's reform of the temple um his final That's a haft That's a haft And where's Rick Mueller when we need him? <laughs> right. I well he he's not dead doesn't he's not No, dead. I know it was a joke cuz I know. Oh, anyway. but look through look through the Chumash. I mean, I don't remember all the haft I just tried to find fast and I couldn't find it anyway. And then I want to ask uh, another. I'll, let me look. Let me see if I can find it after. I'll look it up afterwards. Okay. Um, and then the other is, and I'm not even sure if I should ask this or not, but I'll just say I'm an out of town member who joined in the pandemic. I've never been to Beth Am. I've only seen online. But what we, you just said about the priesthood, and I understand as Mara de Atra, it's a complicated thing with Minhag of Ashul, but when you were the senior rabbi, was there duchening? No. Were the first two aliyot called? Uh, yeah, the first two aliyot, it depended upon, you know, if we needed them for families when there were B'nai Mitzvah. No, and I, I remember one Shabbos, standing before the congregation, there was no special event. I had my regulars, okay? And among them were Kohanim. And so I said, okay, there are so many, so many Kohanim here this morning. I want you guys to be mochel, your your privilege, to give up your privilege so that we can use your aliyot for other purposes. And if there are no purposes, then you guys can have it. How's that? Do you agree? They all said yes. So that, that's what we followed. Just out of, you know, respect for the family trees that they represented. All right, but basically it was a very loose kind of a commitment, not an ideologically driven one. Got it? So yes, uh, we and and we said we followed all of the readings 
in the Torah, I'm sorry, in the Siddur that put all of the all of the sacrifices in the past tense, and everybody knew my feelings about active priesthood. So I was very open about it. All right, Mark. Uh, yeah, given your prior uh, comments about the contamination of worship, you know, in both kingdoms, uh, you know, exile is is uh, usually looked upon as a punishment. Could it be a, also a, on the flip side of the coin, a purification of worship uh, that could happen as, well, as a result? I think that's what the results were hoped for, and that's what happened. Okay? In other words, mm-hmm. the, the notion would be, and you can see hints at this, even if you read the the biblical accounts, Right? It is a kind of cleansing, okay? And it says, if you return, if you return to me, right? That's where you get the concept of tshuva, the shavtem, you will return, then you will go back to the land, okay? And at least, so this was interpreted as being a cleansing. Whether that was the, I mean, it would appear, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say because it was not formulated. I don't think the accounts, I'm trying to think, in, I'm thinking Leviticus in the, the curses. For example, in a sense it was because it says, for example, that the, the, um, the land will get its Shemitah back. The people in their sinfulness neglected to let the land rest once in seven years, right? Because the, the Shabbat principle this is a great concept. The Shabbat principle was applied to the land just as it was to the Israelites. Okay, once in seven. So when the Israelites failed to observe the Shemitah, which apparently they, that happened. So the book of Leviticus says when you get sent into exile, the land will rest. And it's payback for the Shemitahs that you took away from him. Wow. There's a sense of correcting <laughs> what went wrong, right? Because the, the, the curses end up with the statement that eventually you'll go back if you, if you return. And you see the same thing in Ezekiel. Yeah. Uh, exile was <clears throat> more of a spiritual experience without the, the land. It was, it was, yeah, but I mean, it it was the the purging, though. Remember, fire purges. It was in the sense of purging by fire. Think about it. Disease, hunger, burning of of temples, right? Um, Killing of people. That's all a process of purging, getting rid of the evil. So in a sense, in their, I'm quite sure in the minds of particularly the priests or those who were the sensitive monotheists, sensitive to the ideals, that's what was going on. And when they came back, uh, they did have a sense of having purged all of that, uh, you know, but they were filled with fear of violating. And the book of Ezra says it explicitly, you don't want to go back into exile. That threat hung over their heads. Was sort of uh, stuck in a loop because once you a people returns to their land and has a land, then the the seeds of corruption 
Well, they did, but that was in a later generation. And the corruption of the priesthood, as far as we know, uh, in the Second Temple period occurred within the last couple of centuries before its destruction. The priests up until we don't have no we have no evidence of any any railing against the priests. But you see that already in, uh, you know, Josephus is very adamant about that when he talks about the, you know, the, the, the priests who are running the show. Um, so, yeah. All right. Now we'll see what time it is. Oh, it's only 107. That's great. All right. Moving on. Now, <clears throat> we're now going to take a look at the other side of this whole process. Um you will find on Genesis chapter 12, okay? We're going to look at trees, altars, standing stones, Abraham, and Jacob. <clears throat> you ready? All right, Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. No, stop. Stop. I'm reading my instructions. Before we do this, Oh, by the way, I didn't note. I left. Oh, my, I left out another source. Pardon me. I, I this. I guess I got to jump back for a moment. A monolatry, right? Where you worship one god, but you recognize other gods. This is also from Kabbalah Shabbat. Don't look. Just listen. This is a chapter ninety-seven, Psalms, verse seven. Yevoshu kol of day pesel. May all the worshippers of idols be shamed, who sort of praise themselves because of their worship of the idols. <clears throat> Let all the gods bow down to him, bow down to God. Let all the gods bow down to God. That kind of a statement implies there are other gods, but they should be worshiping God like the Israelites should be worshiping God. Okay. And this is not a henotheism where they're part of God's court. They're just there. Kiatarunai Elyon al Kolhaaretz. This is verse 9 of Psalm 97. You, Adonai, are high above all the land. Ma'od na'leta. You have been, you are really high al Kol Elohim above all the other gods. So this says there are other gods, okay? But you see within the Psalms themselves, there's a struck, there's like a debate going on. Are there other gods? Are there no other gods? Yes? No. All right? Different, different, different streams. All right, now, 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 now. I'm supposed to show you, according to my notes, before we get started, all of these wonderful pictures that I made, okay? And here we go. I have beautiful pictures of trees. You didn't know you were going to have a uh, class on trees. Well, here you go. All right. So first we're going to look at the trees that are called, and, and here's the problem. you got two different trees. You'll see the common denominator in the trees, and it's quite obvious. Okay, this is a terebinth. You see the terebinth? Beautiful tree, isn't it? You can see why that might be worshipped. Provide shade, right? It's a symbol of growth. Yes. So that that was a tree that was worshipped. All right. Here's another one. This is an oak tree. 
See, same, same kind of thing. Got it? That's an oak tree. Now, here's the problem. <clears throat> the oak tree can be called uh, an Allah, Alon, Elon, Elon, or Ela. The terebinth can be called Alon, Elon, Elon, Ela. Somebody got confused between the two. I mean, isn't that strange? The same words are being used, and they know what the differences are. I mean, today people can understand the differences because in different locales, different trees flourish. They all flourish in different parts parts of Eretz Israel. But the problem in trying to figure out exactly what kind of trees we're talking about is that the names are be, are flip-flopped. Okay, but anyway, when we see trees that have these various words associated with them, these are they. And now there's a third tree, however, which is most interesting. And this is Abraham. Um, we'll, we'll see. The, remember when Abraham, well, you'll see. Abraham makes an altar and plants this tree. He plants this tree. This is called a tamarisk tree. In Hebrew, it's an eshel, eshel, a tamarisk tree. Okay? What does this prove? This proves, and who planted the tree? Abraham. This proves that the Jewish National Fund was founded by Abraham, our forefather. He is the first Israelite to plant a tree. Got it? You heard it here for the first time. Got to learn that, memorize it. Ha, ha, ha. Thank you. I see the applause. Thank you very much. Bible. At least somebody's applauding. All right. But here's the rub. Get a little <laughs> By the way, all these names that I've mentioned have two letters in common. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. Thank you. All right. Aleph and Lamet. All the trees have an Aleph and a Lamet. Isn't that interesting? What does Aleph Lamet spell? El. El, God. And that was the pagan god, El, as well. The chief, Chief Honcho, the big guy. Okay? But now, look at this is also, this is a tamarisk in bloom. Ready? See what you think about this guy. What do you say now? Wow. Isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that beautiful? Notice that pinkish reddish. So here's the thought. And I, nobody, this is an invention of my brain as of an hour and a half ago. I will take full credit or full rebuke for it. Eshel, Esh, El, the fire of God. Look at the tree in bloom. The fire of God. How about that one? Beautiful. Yeah. But I mean, the name, you know, I mean, the olive falls out because it's, remember, it's both a, a verb, a noun, I'm sorry, it's both a, um, a letter and a vowel. And sometimes it falls out. So olive sheen lamed could originally have been olive sheen olive lamed, but it was too pagan sounding, so maybe they left the olive out. By the way, Aish is used 
in uh, names. Um, for example, oh, the best example of that would be, um, hold on, Saul, one of Saul's son, they call him Ish Baal. And then later on, they don't like it, so they call him Ish Boshet. <clears throat> Baal means, Ish, Ish Baal means uh, man of Baal, of the god, Baal. Uh, Ish Boshet means the man of a shameful thing. So they changed Baal to Boshet. That happens a few times. But Ish here, most of the Bible scholars today would say that there was a term in Canaanite called Esh Baal, fire of Baal. So this is Eshel, because it's the fire of God, of El, a pagan name, the god El. Don't know. But anyway. So it looks are, like a burning, it well, looks like a burning bush. In a sense, yes. But it's not a bush. That's the thing. It's a tree. I'll get to the burning bush later. I have the, I have theories about that one too. Okay. <laughs> All right. So when we talk in trees, this is what we're talking about. All right. Okay. I have shown you that. Now let's move on. Rabbi, may I just ask you fast? What? I wanted visually. I wanted to be able to go back and look at those trees. By chance, did they come from a website called greeningisrael.com? I didn't, I went, I found them all on my own by going to the, um, pictures of trees. Could be. I mean, there are sites that deal with the flora and fauna of Israel. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> That's not how I found these. And it took a little probing because I read somewhere in talking about the, the, um, the tamarisk tree that it, it blossoms, you know, and I found a website that had a picture of a blossoming tamarisk tree. Okay. So I'm just throwing it out, as I say, as a hypothesis, which may have no support for at all. All right. Now, so let's look at a terebinth verse, uh, chapter 12 of Genesis <clears throat> verses six and seven. Ready? Genesis 12, 6 and 7. So, Vayavor Avram Ba'aretz Ad Makom Shechem. So, Abraham passed through the land. Remember, he's now traveling at God's behest to a land that God will show him. He gets there and now he's passing through the land to Ad Makom Shechem, to the place that became, that was Shechem. Ad Alon Moreh. To the terebinth of Moreh. Now, what does Moreh mean? Nobody knows for sure. It could mean the teaching tree. Okay? Vaknani Azba'aretz. And the Canaanites were then in the land. All right. So, God appeared to Abram, Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And he built there an altar to God, who appeared to him. So isn't it interesting that Abraham puts up an altar by a tree that has a name to it, near Shechem, which became, it's in Shechem, Shechem became a cultic center in Israel. There's a tree, altar by a tree. Okay, 
Now, it's for God, but it's interesting. What is it actually doing? Or what is the text doing? That word again, it is repurposing the pagan form of worship and shifting it over to the work of the worship of Hashem. But it's interesting that the text is not um, concerned about the fact that he's doing this. He's putting a an altar next to a tree. Now, Deuteronomy says that's forbidden. So clearly, Avram didn't know Deuteronomy. Of course not, the Torah wasn't given. Okay? But the fact is, you already have but the total, when this was written, however, by the way, that implies that this is probably a very old tradition that was handed down, moving through the stronger pagan influence period, slowly, slowly down until finally at some point it becomes cleansed of its paganism, it becomes the focus here is the fact that it says a an altar to God, to Hashem, means this is not pagan practice anymore. This is a worship of God. But what it is doing, it is taking a pagan act of worship and transferring it over to the worship of the one God, which is exactly what the law codes forbid. Okay, so you can see I'm talking here about evolution of monotheism. It's cleansed, but nonetheless, it's present. Okay. Moving on. Again, our, our beloved friend, okay, Avram. So then, now Genesis 13, 18. 18. Vayel Avram, okay, he picked up his tent. Vayavo Vayeshe Be'elone Mamre. Genesis 13, 18. He came and he dwelt at the terebinths of Mamre, Asher Hebron, which are in Hebron. Okay, Elone Mamre. Plural. And he built there an altar, Laronai, to God. Once again, now this is called a sacred grove. This was also a form of ancient pagan worship, a grove. And so in the presence of this, and this was, again, this is so prominent that the site's named for it. And there he builds a Mizbeach. And again, this is not a flourishing city, right? This is a spot. On the, on, you know, it's there. And so he builds an altar to God. Same thing. This is a terebinth. Okay. Then God appears to him, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1. Okay. And now this is, he's speaking to Avraham, although it doesn't say that, but by verse 18, his name is changed. He's back at so God appears to him there as well. All right. Again, you can see this is a site where God appears. And again, I'm emphasizing that that this is Kevron, a major, it became a major city. I'm not aware of a pagan worship center there. But clearly this Elonay Mamre was a, at some point was a significant thing. Okay, now, Genesis 21, 31 to 33. Okay, this is when he's negotiating about wells with Avimelech, the Philistine, even though the Philistines didn't exist at that time. They weren't there yet. Doesn't matter. 
All right. Genesis 21, 31 to 33. So therefore they called the place Be'er Shava, the, the well of the oath, because there the two of them took an oath. Vayikritu Brit, and they made a covenant, Be'er Shava and Be'er Shava. Vayakam Abimelech Ufichol Sartzva'o, and Abimelech and his, his general Fichol uh, got up, Vayashuvu El Eretz Plishtim, and they went to the land of the Plishtim. Now, it would prob, what this is probably means, I mean, the, the authors of the Bible knew that the Philistines weren't there back then. I'm pretty sure they knew that. But by calling it Eretz Plishtim, it's the land, in other words, they lived in the area that later on would become the land of the police team. That's the only thing I can understand here. Okay, now, Vayita Eshel Sheva, Sheva, right? And there, he planted a tree. Now, there's no Mizbeach, no worshiping, okay? He planted a tree in Beersheba, and he called in the, called called out the name of God. So in a sense, he's sanctifying this place with an eshel, one of those big trees. Even though there's no sacrifice, he's associating God's name with the place. So he's worshiping God with the tree that he planted. Okay? So the, here you have an example of, of this uh, tree worship, of you know, incorporating this in a benign way into the stories of the patriarchs. All right? All right, one more, and this is Isaac, okay? He's not plant, he didn't plant trees, but he also um, comes to Beersheba, all right? A, so he goes up to Beersheba, verse 20, chapter 26 of Genesis, verses 23 to 25, okay? Misham Beersheba. So he goes from there to Beersheba, chapter 26. 23 to 25. Vayera I love Adonai, God appears to him. Balalahu, that night, Vayomer Anochi, Elohei Avraham Avicha, Altira. I am, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Do not fear. Ki itcha Anochi, for I am with me, with you. Uberachticha, I will bless you. Viherbeti et Zaracha, I will increase your, your, your descendants. For the sake of Abraham, my servant. Verse 25. He built there an altar by called God's name. He planted his, his tent. Um, and they dug a well. Okay? All right. So he builds a Mizbeach in Beersheba. <clears throat> now, and calls the name of God. No tree. But what they've done, in, in uh, archaeologists found a large horned altar at Beersheba. It was reconstructed with seven well-dressed stones found in the secondary use in the walls of the later building. This altar attests to the existence of a temple or cult center in the city probably dismantled during the reforms of King Hezekiah around 710 BCE. But it would appear the Beersheba cultic center was later reconstituted because Josiah again tears it down. Second Kings 23.8, 
So he he brought in, I'm reading, translating from what Josiah did, Josiah around 620. All the, the priests, right? He, he gathered up all of the priests in these sites throughout the city, the, the cities of Judah. And he defiled the Bamot Asher uh, Kitru, which they had sanctified with incense. Shamaha Kohanim. Okay. Migeva ad Beersheba. From Geva, which would be in the north of Judah, to Beersheba in the south. So clearly, Beersheba had become a cultic center. All right. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me. So we see here that Abraham in particular is associated with these kinds, with these, with the trees, and that um, Isaac is associated with putting an altar at a place that later became, later became a worship site for Hashem. There's no idolatry here, but it was one of the worship sites that King Josiah closed down because they became places where idolatry may have crept in. Not, we don't have evidence that they crept into all of them, but it's, it, it would seem that, um, but it, what it indicates, of course, is that it was widespread. All right. We're stopping here. <clears throat> excuse me. We will continue this next week. <clears throat> we're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me. We will look at Matsevot, at standing stones, and this is going to really knock your socks off because it, it really gets hot and heavy. Okay. And more trees and further references, et cetera, et cetera. So you're continuing to get a sense, I hope, here of the evolution of monotheism that takes place based upon the texts in the Bible. And we will be ending up this discussion by looking at the prophets around the time of the destruction of the temple to see what they tell us that bothered them in the same vein. Okay? All right. I wish you all Shabbat Shalom. It's early, but nonetheless, Shabbat Shalom. Early, an early wish for Purim. Happy Purim. We're about a month out now, give or take, whatever. And um, other good things. And stay healthy. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.